episode 162 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers podcast, part of the MKE Tailgate Podcast Network. I'm James, joined again today by Ryan Top and Brad Ford. Paul's out of town this weekend, but we got Brad back. So how are we guys doing today? You know, I was actually doing very well. And then we had two 20 minutes of uh, talk that got me down before the podcast. So hopefully talking brewers can get it back up. <laughs> oh, boy. I, yeah. I I don't know how to break this to you. But uh, yeah, that might not be the, that might not be the thing right now. <laughs> oh, no. Is the team in a weird uh, situation where they're bailing on all money? <laughs> yeah, it does seem yeah. to be heading that direction. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, no, guys, I needed this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not looking like a sunny start to the offseason, at least. But uh, we'll get to that. In the meantime, we're sponsored again today by Carbon 4 Brewing. You know, the great beers, Block Party, uh, Fantasy Factory IPA. Also, one of my favorites is now back outer space, New England style Imperial IPA. I had some uh, this weekend. Very good. Check it out if you can. Next time you're in Madison, stop by their brewery on Kinsman Boulevard on the east side. You also get 20% off some Carbon 4 merch online just by listening to us. Go to Carbon4.com. Use our promo code MKE Tailgate when you check out. That's Carbon 4 Beer Brilliance. You can also help support our podcast network at Patreon.com slash MKE Tailgate. For just $5 a month, our ball and glove and above patrons get the Minor League Extra podcast with Ryan and Brad, as well as Paul's reporting as eligible mini pods. You also get a pre- uh, preview, I should say, of the Packers game every single week. And you also get question priority both here on this podcast and the reporting as eligible podcast. All right. In the meantime, the World Series wrapped up in the last week. Dodgers won their first World Series in more than 30 years. And that really should be the headline, but uh, it wasn't. <laughs> Thanks to Justin Turner. You all know by now, Justin Turner had some uh, positive test results come back in the middle of the game. He was pulled halfway through the game, maybe potentially suspiciously once it appeared the Dodgers had the game in hand. Then uh, basically uh, made his way back out on the field for the celebration, even though he should have been in isolation. MLB had a very sternly worded uh, statement for Justin Turner. Didn't really do much other than that. So I guess, uh, Ryan, (laughs) we'll start with you. Your take on the World Series as a whole and the whole Justin Turner mess. Well, I mean, I was happy to see, always like to see success for Mookie Betts and was really genuinely happy to have Clayton Kershaw not only get his World Series, but pitch well and be part of that win. Like he he was very good in his starts and he contributed to that win mightily. The entire postseason too, not just the World Series. Yeah. Going back to the the Brewers start, which we can argue how impressive that was. But yeah, he pitched well all month long. Yeah, he did. And I guess that last start in game five wasn't great, but it was solid. It was it was him doing kind of what he needed to do to get through. And he's not the pitcher he was. He's still very, very good, but he's not the pitcher that he was. It was very funny. I I put this out this week. Did you guys realize that uh, Jack Morris's ERA is like less than point four? Uh, postseason ERA is less than 0.4 less than uh, than Kershaw's and oh, Morris right. got into the <laughs> Hall of Fame based on his postseason prowess and Clayton Kershaw was considered a postseason choker and if you like were to era adjust that because baseball reference doesn't do ERA plus for the postseason I think that the computations on it are just too weird to try to figure that out but that has to be about even right if it's I think it was about 420 to about 380 that has to be yeah. about even considering the eras, right? 
it was it was good to see Kershaw get his. It, it was good to see the Dodgers kind of finally get over and and able to do that. It was it was a nice way for that to to all resolve. But then Justin Turner went and acted like a complete jag. And like I I really I, I put this on Twitter too. I really had a huge issue with what he did and what the Dodgers did, much more so than MLB. It, my brother did point out to me that Yes, they probably should have scrapped the on-field celebration period, given right. that somebody like a bad idea. somebody on the team had tested positive, and you're like now bringing all the families in and whatever. But really, that the more I thought about that, that's really just optics, right? Because they're going to celebrate somewhere. The Dodgers are not sure. going to not celebrate. So if you <laughs> don't do it on the field, you're going to be doing it in an enclosed space someplace else. And all you really need to know about Justin Turner is that after having tested positive and remember, these guys were in a bubble, they were in a bubble, isolated away from their families and whatever. And Justin Turner, however, he caught it. Who knows how that even happened? But he was out there kissing his wife in the post game, knowing he had just tested positive for COVID-19. I mean, the level of selfishness involved in that is really stunning because she wouldn't have been exposed because they weren't together. It wasn't like this is a case where, you know, a couple gets it and you know, they're both going to end up with it after one test well, positive because they've been together. I do think that weren't, weren't family members allowed for the postseason Cause I remember like Casey Sogard saying like they had to kind of isolate if they wanted to see Eric in the postseason. So I, I could be off on that. Okay. Yeah, that's true. So maybe, yeah, maybe they were, but still, you know, yeah, I think your family was allowed. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, you're still like you've just tested positive for COVID and you're kissing your wife. That yeah. that just is like that's a level of ickiness that I just I I can't fathom that. Like we were talking about this a little bit before we started. I don't think I think his market's going to be hurt by this. He's a free agent this offseason, and I think there are going to be teams Maybe it won't be many, but there will be at least some teams, I think, that that don't plan on making him an offer because of what happened. And it could potentially be the Brewers. The Brewers have taken this pretty seriously and seem to have had kind of a clubhouse culture of being very careful. And they definitely could use help at first and third. And I could see them staying away from him because of this. I don't know. I'm not going to rule that out. But at the same time, I don't know how many teams are going to fault to guy for celebrating the world series i mean i i'm with you that uh he probably should have isolated and stayed away and i know it sucks to not be able to celebrate the world series when your team wins but you know we've all had to avoid social situations we wanted to be in in the last six or seven months right so i mean it is just kind of part of the sacrifices we've all had to make this year and I, I can understand. I can be sympathetic to Justin Turner, who, you know, is in his mid thirties is probably the last chance. Maybe he has to celebrate this. I can see where he said, basically like, screw it. I'm going out there above, you know, the team and the, and the league going, we, we, we would rather prefer you not to, you know, and he just kind of barges past security and does it anyway. Yeah. And I've heard people complaining, like security should have stopped him. Like what? You're, what are you going to do? Like, no, no you're, not. you're not somebody <laughs> I've worked security for things, not right. not for baseball, <laughs> but for other things. And like the idea that I would tackle a millionaire who I'm 
really actually my job is to like protect them from the public like that that was my job at working right. security for concerts and it was like the idea that i would like tackle a millionaire no that like especially like a professional athlete like to keep them from celebrating and like expose myself to their covid like that's insane like no right. you you were not going to stop him from doing what he wanted to do it's on him and his team for being okay with that also, there's a decent chance they just don't know, right? I mean, you're not supposed to be looking at your phone when you're on security. You're not really yeah. getting consistent news when you're security. Uh, the, you're the last person people are going to inform, like, by the way, we took Justin Turner out. He has the COVID. <laughs> tackle so, him. I mean, yeah, tackle him. <laughs> I mean, I think that's on MLB and the Dodgers to get him further, or far enough removed from the situation that he cannot reenter. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it sounded like they had a designated place where guys were supposed to go if they tested positive for COVID while they were with the team. That every every stadium had like a room that was set aside. And I just don't think they thought about it from a like, what if the guy tries to leave perspective, which maybe they should <laughs> have. But like, I think that that kind of is like that. That wasn't something they were thinking about. And I get why you wouldn't necessarily plan like how are you going to keep him from like you're going to lock him lock the door <laughs> like, yeah, there is a pretty easy solution ryan it's called an inanimate carbon rod <laughs> yeah like the, there's really kind of a, a limitation on what you can do to to keep a person who wants to do what justin turner did kind of a mock microcosm of you know what we're seeing across the country too like everybody knows what they should do but you know a lot of people just don't think it should apply to them or is it Tampa Bay's fault because if they win that game and don't take Blake Snell out, <laughs> then Justin Turner goes home, is cut off from the World Series, and can't celebrate if the Dodgers win game seven. So aren't you kind of glad that that never really happened to Craig Council? Because he had made a lot of those same sorts of decisions throughout his time. I just think that Tampa Bay actually made the right decision. And it's easy to say like, well, Blake Snell is Blake Snell, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it, to be fair in Craig Council's history, when he ha is using like a Woodruff, he has let him go past the three times through the order thing. But I mean, it's a strategic tactic that has helped out a lot of managers to find a lot of success in their career. And in recent years in MLB. So I, I actually think it's really hard to blame. I get why in hindsight you look back and especially when immediately the next man in gives up the go ahead runs. But I, I just think when you look at, if you're willing to look at baseball scientifically, like a lot of people are now, he made statistically the right decision, even if it is Blake Snell. Yeah. I think also the Blake Snell thing is kind of amplified by the fact that, in this postseason alone, there was another instance where uh, they took Blake Snell out and, you know, was it the Astros series where they took him out and he, he literally was seen like mouthing, what the F are we doing kind of thing? Like uh, it's already kind of built up to that point too, uh, where he's been frustrated about not being able to finish an inning, whether or not it was the right call. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, is it was Nick Anderson who yeah. came in, gave up runs and that made him, what was it? The sixth, time in a row he had given up runs in a postseason yeah. appearance right. and so that i think that was probably the bigger part of it is if they brought in somebody else i think people would have less trouble with it but they brought in nick anderson who's been not good in the postseason 
and it blew up instantly. And if the pitcher you bring in isn't immediately giving up runs, right? I mean, it's the next inning Blake Snell's supposed to pitch. If you get through that inning clean, and then it's the inning after that, I think inning seven, right? You are looking at a situation where it's like, okay, well, Snell almost definitely would have been out after that last inning. So now it's easier to see. But yeah, bringing in Nick Anderson, I think, was the more questionable decision because he had failed the team already on a pretty consistent basis up until that point. Yeah. Uh, and I think, as I am, for the same reasons, happy that, as Ryan, that the Dodgers won because there are players who I do like on the Dodgers. I don't think they're super hateable without Manny Machado on the team anymore. And Clayton Kershaw deserves his ring. Obviously, Justin Turner's a villain now, but, I mean, he's gone, so whatever. And I still would have liked to see the Rays get it, and I'm a little disappointed that their big comeback victory with Brett Phillips is a little diminished now because they didn't end up being the World Series winners. Yeah, that would have been like a series defining moment, right? Like the the lasting image of this series for years to come. I think Right, and now it means so much less because they didn't win. Yeah, now it's just a footnote that people will be like, "Oh yeah, you remember that game where that happened?" as opposed to mm-hmm. it's not the Kirk Gibson moment where it will be replayed forever and ever and ever and be this huge thing because the Dodgers ended up going on to win that series even though that was game 1, right? That was the beginning of the series. No, that was uh, game four. It was the second Rays win. Yep. No, no, no. The Kirk Gibson home run was game one. Oh, wow. sorry. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then they went on to sweep that series, right? Uh, or win it in five or something. It was, yeah. 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 I mean, it was that relatively series quick. was not particularly close. Yeah, because they were against Tony Larusa, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which will come up again later. Funny how things come full circle <laughs> like that, right? Yeah, I... I don't know. I I am happy for the Dodgers, and I would have felt terribly if this was, you know, like their third, what was it, like their third or fourth chance at the World Series, and they still came up empty. Yeah. I think last week I had said, like, that Brett Phillips, a Rosarena play was just proof that the Dodgers were cursed in the World Series and never <laughs> winning one. So I, I'm glad that they finally broke through and got at least one. And then from that moment, they never lost again. So, you know. Right. Oh my God. Actually, that reminds me of uh, who was it? Uh, God, the quiz guy on from ESPN who's now on the oh, athletic. Stump the Schwab. No, uh, Jason. He always does the baseball uh, like fun facts where it's like odd statistics. Oh, Jason Stark. Yeah. Jason Stark. Oh, he yeah, tweets yeah. out like in the fourth inning in the game where they had the comeback win, like the Dodgers. Are, so we're in game four. They just get to the fourth inning. He's like, the Dodgers have not been behind since the start of game three. I was like, okay, that's 12 innings. <laughs> like, What type of stat is that, stat nerd? <laughs> it's so stupid. Yeah, there is there is some of that stuff. I saw some talk about this, uh, I think, on it was like MLB Network or something, too. And, you know, maybe it doesn't apply as much to the World Series, but they were talking about the expanded playoffs, which we all hate. And in kind of how it diminishes moments that we remember from every postseason, right? So I think especially with an expanded field this year, extra rounds, it's easy to forget Cody Bellinger home run saving catch or something like that was the example. Amazing play. It's not going to check on the radar years from now. And I think just this year, too, with the even with the World Series, like it's still a friggin' World Series. But 2020, I think we all kind of agreed last week we'll check this off as like a just a weird COVID year and nothing really matters. So that's kind of disappointing, I guess, too, from a a Dodgers standpoint. 
Yeah, I think actually when I think back to uh, championship seasons and long playoffs that relate back to me, like you think back to the Packers in 2010, 2011, I remember instant with like out having to actively think about it. I remember BJ Raji against the Bears. Mm-hmm. And then I remember Nick Collins in the playoff or in the Super Bowl and uh, the pass to Greg Jennings, the like really good uh, pass o- over the middle. But like you forget the Tremont Williams game saving interception against Philadelphia. You forget the other interceptions for touchdowns against Atlanta, which was a blowout. So if you just look at like that and like my own personal history, I can barely retain those. (laughs) And (laughs) then if like it, I think it goes on to demonstrate and prove that example. Like those were huge moments for a team that mattered to me. Now think about it on a national scale by having those extra series. How do you retain that information when you're just trying to relive it as like a person who goes back and be like, oh, yeah, that was a good playoffs because it honestly, it was a pretty decent playoff year. I don't want to give Rob any credit for ruining baseball, (laughs) but I mean, it was a pretty fun uh, set of playoffs to watch. And I barely have any memories of it. (laughs) Well, and the thing is, I think that you can look at like the path that they took. And I agree with what Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller said about this, that realistically, because the Dodgers, because they weren't an out of nowhere team that they had built up to this, that they had gone through so much to get to this point. They'd been to multiple world series before this and lost them close. And the fact that they're back again, in this case, they're obviously the best team in baseball. Right. And they were playing obviously like the best or one of the best American league teams as well in the world series. And they had to go through that extra layer of playoffs for this. If anything, that just adds to the legitimacy of what they, they had to do. It's not like they fluked their way into the playoffs. It's not the brewers. They didn't get in with a 29 and 31 record and then go on some run or something. They, they were the best team in baseball. They would have been the best team in baseball over 162 also, or one of the best teams like, the only thing you could say is, well, maybe some people would have gotten hurt or whatever, but that's true for everybody. You know, if you play a longer season, maybe other teams get weakened, more weakened by injuries as well. So, yeah, I think if we're looking at it, too, they're less easy to hate compared to some of the other super teams in the past, because aside from like Mookie, it's basically homegrown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all, all their superstars yeah. are from very strategic Bellinger, prospect clinging those yeah exactly. or guys they've ret- i mean clayton kershaw is a homegrown dodger that they clung on to or trades for minor league prospects that ended up working out it's a lot of things that worked out just right and mm-hmm. them holding on and building a team well i mean even the mookie thing that's due to them hoarding such good prospects for so long that's how you right. get a prosper a guy like that but it barely hurt your farm either mm-hmm. so I think there's a lot to respect about the Dodgers organization. You look at it and you're more like, I wish that's how my team was run versus when you look at the Yankees of your, and you're like, well, my team's never going to be able to write three $100 million checks. No, but the Dodgers do pay their own players then. I mean, yes. they, they trade for Mookie Betts, but then they give him a massive extension. So right. like it, it does kind of balance out that way that they are able to do, they're able to, to, act the way that they act and proceed how they proceed because they do have hugely deep pockets to be able to keep their own guys for certain. That's not, not a thing for sure, but at least like the guys they're holding on to are guys that they developed 
for the most part, aside from Mookie. Right. I mean, you trade for Mookie, then you give him a 10-year record deal. Yeah. <laughs> or guys that they identified early, like Justin Turner. Right. Guys who didn't work in other organizations, Muncie. they bring over and they succeed well. To Brad's point, it, it they at least seem like they're kind of doing it, quote-unquote, the right way. Or at least, like, you know, they're they're doing this through scouting, identifying talents. And then they're retaining it as opposed to, you know, the Yankees criticism has always been, well, just find the top free agent and throw money at it, you know? Um, right. I, I still understand why fans of smaller markets like the Brewers can hate them. I just think as a fan of baseball development or prospect development, it's harder for me to hate them, especially the the guys they keep are fun. And then they if they let a guy go and they sign a big contract, it's because they have someone who's talented enough to replace them without issue. Right. Well, I guess transitioning, speaking of letting people go, Brewers <laughs> let everybody go, <laughs> at least everyone that they had options on uh, for next year. So they had four players with team options for next year. We kind of ran through them last week, uh, kind of doing like a yay or nay situation on whether or not we think they should have been kept or not. I think we all, you know, we all just assumed that the Ryan Braun mutual option was would be declined. It was. Uh, we all kind of assumed Eric Sogard would get declined. It was. I guess the if there's surprises, it was Jed Jerko and even Ben Gamble seeing their options declined. Uh, so Jerko's a free agent now. The Brewers still do have Gamble's rights through arbitration. I think some of the projections had said that they may be able to save a few bucks here or there just by declining the option and trying to go through the arbitration process or working out a new deal. For what it's worth, David Stern said he wouldn't rule out Jerko or Sogard coming back depending on how the offseason shakes out. But that does seem like super unlikely given, you know, the flood of free agents that there are going to be now. I think, you know, Brad was going through before the show. You can count on one hand, I think, the number of options across the league that were actually picked up. So I guess, you know, Ryan, we, we talked about the options a lot last week. So let's just start with Brad. I guess any surprises here on who the Brewers, whether it's Jerko or somebody else that they didn't pick up? I think it's definitely Jerko. Now, Ryan Braun, we've been talking all year that there was almost no way that they're going to pay him the $15 million, especially because we think they can pay him the $4 million buyout and do something substantially cheaper that still saves some large chunks of money by bringing him back. I don't think they do if there's no NLDH, and I don't even think Ryan Braun wants to play if there's no NLDH. I think he likes hitting, and he doesn't wants to spend time out of the field. But for Jed Jerko to have your leading offensive bat, I think he was over 10 higher in OPS plus than anyone else on the team come back at four and a half million, which is an incredible, I mean, they signed Eric Sogard at 4 million for the season, <laughs> right? You basically played with the buyout four and a half million for Eric Sogard to do whatever he did for this team. I'm not sure if it's a positive contribution or not. He did something. He existed, but, but when you judge on how badly the team did, I'm not really sure where to put him on that scale. He definitely didn't help. Then you have Jed Jericho, who was 100% a net positive. First base and third base are weak uh, parts of your organization. And to let him go, they either think they can get him back for like only another $1 million contract, which is what they paid him this year. So you have $1 million. Then you had the $1 million buyout that you paid him on his option. And then another $1 million. But it does seem to be pinching pennies while putting your organization at risk to see a decline after a pretty bad offensive year. Jed Jerko seemed like an automatic pickup to me for four and a half million. 
Ben Gamble, I think with the arrival of Tyrone Taylor and having similar offensive output surprises me less. And depending on where they project arbitration is going to go, I could see him being a non-tender. Yeah. I don't think he's a necessary to their success. I like Ben Gamble. I'd like to see him stick around, but I think he's pretty easily replaceable when you look at a guy like Tyrone Taylor or even just fringe left-handed bats who aren't going to have teams but are going to play okay outfield defense. Corey Ray even. I didn't yeah, realize Corey until yeah, I didn't realize it until I wrote up the thing for Brew Crew Ball this week. But Ben Gamble is actually below replacement level this year by the end of the year. So yeah. like quite literally, you can find anybody to do what he did this year. Right. And as we're seeing options upon options upon options declined, there's going to be a wealth of talent out there that should be able to perform at least at a Ben Gamble level. And I think based on the people that they've thrown out there to play in that outfield utility role, it's clear they don't really care about the off or defensive production of their utility players to a point. I think they want to have a decent center field bench option, which you have in Tyrone Taylor. And then aside from that, it's just guys you can play all over who have at least a small offensive upside. And aside from that, they don't really care about what their out backup outfielders do in terms of production off the bench. Yeah, I think that that's that's all accurate. And we talked about this last week, of course, the idea that Jerko was going to be a bellwether. And I think that we now see that that is the case. Like, and I think that you could point to even bigger guys stranger situations brad hand not being picked up by cleveland after having yeah. a really good season and he was only going to make what nine million ten million ten million ten million option for one of the best late relievers in the baseball yeah yeah and so that to me says that the the spending market this winter ha- is going to be crashed like it's going to be absolutely crashed which we pretty much already knew i mean we we were guessing that that was going to be the case there will probably be some teams that spend some money, but it's going to be a winter of pretty extreme austerity around baseball. And I think knowing that now you could see how the Jerko thing fits right with that, right? Like that fits right into the overall picture of what's going on in baseball. And they had to have known that, you know, maybe they didn't know specifically Brad hand, but they had to have known that there was a lot of, talent that was going to be flooding back onto the market because teams didn't want to pay what they normally would for these players. And yeah, that it just, it, it throws everything kind of into a weird, uh, into a weird area where we've never really seen this before. We've never seen a market like this. <laughs> whoa, 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 Ryan, are you saying that MLB owners have conversations about what they're willing to pay players and, actually end up controlling the market by dictating how they op- all operate together in free agency. I mean, that it doesn't even have to be like a conspiracy, <laughs> like that they're colluding or whatever. It's just, this is pretty obvious. I mean, they, do. they lost how much, how much revenue did they not make this year? Quote like, unquote. Well, no, I mean, they didn't. Yeah. No, like, I mean, phrasing that that way is probably more accurate than saying lost money. Right. Like, they, right. Right. No, they lost gains. They lost revenue. I just like wonder how much they got back in like playoff games, uh, an extra round of playoff games. I know they're not doing revenue sharing. I I know they're, but I I think there's still a mystery in terms of, yes, they did lose revenue, but also you're looking at, they also paid substantially less employees. They did. They 
well, they both cut their the revenue went way down and the expenses went down. They cut expenses by quite a bit, too. And since we didn't know, we don't know what the original numbers were. We can't know what the modified numbers are either. And I'm the last person who would say we should, like, trust what ownership is going to tell us about their financial situation. But, I mean, we do know that they they did not get the revenue that they have in the past. Like, obviously, right. it's, it's objective, empty, empty stadiums for, you know, 60 games as opposed to, you know, people coming in and spending money over 162 games. Obviously, they didn't make money that same way now. It should be pointed out that a lot of money was made in spring training, and if I'm personally any indication, a lot of people had season ticket plans for this year, rolled them right into next year. We decided to roll ours right into next year. So we didn't take the refund, we didn't take the money back, and we rolled right into next year because they gave us basically 110% back on it. That was the the deal that the Brewers put out there for season ticket holders. So... They did get revenue this year for tickets and things like that. They didn't get the in-game revenue from people being at the park, which is a big part right. of the calculation, but they also didn't have a lot of that expense. You know, yeah. they weren't paying people to work the stadiums either. So, but again, we don't know any of this because we don't know like what the real numbers were in the first place. Like outside of, unless you're Atlanta and you can kind of figure some of that out based on the fact that they're a publicly traded company, but other than that, you, we just have to guess anyway. Right. As and a Wisconsin sports fan, I can adamantly say thank God for publicly traded companies. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we heard David Stearns kind of say this in his end of season press conferences, too. And you've seen some other executives kind of just say they're looking for flexibility right now, which I think is probably the the easy excuse for cutting salary like the brewers saved at least 18 and a half million dollars just by turning down all those options once you factor in the buyouts and everything like that uh but you know it's we don't know what the economy or of hell the country let alone baseball is gonna look like in january or february let alone you well know. and this is one time where you can say like literally flexibility is actually hugely important to them and it's not just eyewash because they do have to be flexible because we don't know if there's going to be empty stadiums next year we don't know if there's going to be games right. next year we don't know if players are going to be able to expect full prorated salary if, if they're if teams are going to have to pay full prorated salary over 162 games with empty stadiums or with 20 percent capacity or we don't know any of this yet and so the teams i think do have to be kind of nimble and flexible and able to adjust on the fly because they don't know. I mean, they, you know, that they are smart. These organizations are smart. I'm sure they have all these different contingencies planned out. Like they have worked out. This is what it will look like. If it's a, a shortened season with no fans, this is what it'll look like. If it's a full season with no fans, this will be, you know, at 20% capacity. And they have these numbers kind of rattling around and looking at, at what is possible and what's there, but mm -hmm. they don't know what the, the larger economy is going to look like, what everything else is happening. You have some guesses and some projections, but you don't know. So the idea of being flexible in this off season for like the first time is not complete bullshit. Like they kind of <laughs> have to be flexible because you don't have any idea what the conditions for next year are going to look like yet. And we probably won't for a while. 
not to side with the owners uh, or the the money pocketers, if you will, but I do think it is the if you're looking for a competitive advantage, the smartest thing you can do is clear out as much money as possible because we don't know what we know this is going to be like 2019, but we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. We know it's going to be awful for players to get contracts is basically what we can guarantee going in. Does that mean that players can like the her organizations like the Milwaukee Brewers can end up getting a huge player for significantly less and all of a sudden sign surprising deals that end up benefiting them? That's something that organizations like the Brewers have to strongly consider. You could get a two, three war player for $2 million because the market is just crap and players are going to play to make money. And we've seen like a lot of the higher tier players will sit out until they get what they think they deserve. But in terms of those like B tier players, there's going to be successful players out there who can help your organization for a smaller fee than you would ever pay them before to contribute to your organization. So when you're, it's smart in terms of how you run the organization, having that flexibility, that 18 and a half million dollars, which they're not going to spend all of, I would put money down that they're not going to completely respend that $18 million. But if the opportunity comes there, it could be six to seven high quality players because this market's going to be so crazy. Mm. Or one year for uh, JT Real Muto or George Springer or something. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think Real Muto is even going to get that much. (laughs) Like, I I think like 12 million is going to be about the high we're seeing for some of those players this year. That's a complete guesswork, but just judging based on how bad the 2018 2019 seasons were, if the best that Yasmani Grandal can get was what he got with Milwaukee, which was what, like 15 million, uh, basically an $18 million contract, but through the buyout in the mutual option, right? I think you're looking at a situation like that where they they do a JT rule moto contract and JT's getting like 12 million but then he has a 4 million dollar buyout on a mutual option and you just push the cost further down the road. Mm-hmm. It it'll be interesting to see how many of those things end up getting shaped like that, but I think they're really going to pull the purse strings on these players and it'll be up to them whether or not they want to play and settle for the money that they're getting. And I think a lot of the the problem is the owners actually had the benefit because even the players have to admit with the terrifying nature of the current existence of the financial market. You just don't know. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of uncertainty going into this offseason. And it's a great deal of our Patreon questions this week. So we'll we'll get to those right now. Uh, First question comes from Jay Google. Suck it, Steve. Yeah, (laughs) we went a couple of weeks without Jay going first, but. There you go. So Jay is asking, uh, speaking of Ben Gamble, is he around by spring or is he possibly traded because of the guys they already have in the organization? I know Brad already mentioned, you know, Tyrone Taylor, but there's also Billy McKinney, who the Brewers picked up kind of under the wire or under the radar, I should say, later in the year. Corey Ray, Matthias, that those kind of guys, I guess. Uh, Brad, do you think there's a good chance that Ben Gamble is not on the roster on spring training? Yeah, I think there's a pretty significant chance. Even with his arbitration numbers being fairly affordable, I like I said, I think the market's going to be fairly saturated or saturated with guys like Ben Gamble that you can get and have a possibly higher production at lo- or at just a slightly higher cost. I also think, like I said, from what the Brewers value, 
Tyrone Taylor provides that fourth defensive outfielder. And then from there, they're just looking for offensive output. Ben Gamble obviously is in that offensive output. They We know that they like platoon bats, uh, especially with you expect that they'll be playing this offseason in building platoons similarly to how they were preparing for 2020. But I, I just think there's going to be cheaper options where they can benefit and uh, or like cheaper per amount of production, I guess I should say where Gamel is going to be seen as very overvalued no matter what he ends up getting paid. So I think they probably non-tender is the most likely situation. I don't even think trade is realistic here. Yep. Tra- uh, trade is not happening. It'll be a non-tender. And I would almost guarantee it. I think there's a small chance that they would tender him a contract, but I think it's almost for certain. If they didn't pick up that option, which was, what was that, $2 million? Was it even yeah. $2 million? Uh, two, it's, it's like 2.2. Yeah. 2.25. If they didn't pick that up, they're not going to go to arbitration because arbitration couldn't be that much less than that. Right. Like maybe it would be his projection was like they would have saved 500,000. It was like one seven to two, two or something like that. Yeah. There is the off chance that he settles to a con a very affordable contract beforehand, knowing what the market is just to get guaranteed money. There's the off chance. Yeah. 1 million for next year. Yeah. 1 million and probably like an option with like a $250,000 buyout for like one and a half million the year after and a $250,000 buyout. That's just how they do things lately. Mm -hmm. So I, I could see if they do something like that, gamble wants the guaranteed money. Heck at his state and with the, way things are going in the world i'd take a guaranteed income of seven figures so i mean yeah because otherwise he's very likely i think looking at like a minor league contract offer for spring right like for certain especially with the glut of guys like him who are out there yeah i think yeah but then you know that's an argument against giving him that guaranteed right. one million too I, you know i think the guaranteed cost benefits the brewers but it benefits gamble more i think Strong odds are he's not uh, tendered a contract. Next best chance are the Brewers sign him before arbitration to something that's very friendly for the team. Yeah. Uh, Jay actually mentions uh, McKinney too, which is kind of interesting to me. Uh, you know, like we, I don't think we've actually talked about him on the pod before, but he, he was a late waiver claim. And uh, if you're worried about, maybe losing Ben Gamble's left-handedness off the bat. Billy McKinney hits left-handed, also plays outfield, can also play a little first base if I'm not mistaken. So, I mean, he he fits the versatility vibe that David Stearns likes. He hits left-handed. He's going to make the league minimum and will probably hit as well as Ben Gamble. So I think you guys are all on track when it comes to uh, yeah you know, Ben not being around. Actually, McKinney is probably the, the number one option, right? You're looking at his previous years. The production lines up very similarly. He even has a little bit more power, which should, in honor of Paul being off this weekend, play up in Miller Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, left-handed power in Miller Park. It is It is a thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, and McKinney could have one of those seasons. So McKinney was a former top prospect. My brother was really excited when the Cubs got him. Uh, he came over in one of their trades that they made in like 2015, 14, right before they got good. Like, uh, he was part of the uh, uh, Robles Chapman trade. Uh, they traded him with Addison Russell. Uh, he They got him with Addison Russell in the Oakland Athletics trade for Hamill and Samarja. Okay. Yep. That, yep. That sounds, that sounds familiar now. 
And he has a career line in 411 plate appearances in the major leagues of 231, 291, 437. So again, there is a split there between his batting average and on base percentage. So he does walk a reasonable amount and there is significant power there when you're when you're batting 231 and you've got a 237 or sorry, a 437 slugging, you know, a 200 point split in your in your slugging is not insignificant and he can he could still play outfield relatively well it looks like and he's only 25 years old so he's heading into what you know used to be those peak years you could easily see him having a a year where he puts up you know he has a batting average spike and if he's hitting uh 270 for a season now you're looking at like a 270 what 330 340 and then close to 500 slugging that's a really pretty damn good player and they can put him in a platoon in the outfield and kind of mix and match where they play him. He could be really interesting, but that's going to all sort of depend on him having that, that little spike. And I'm sure that they've been working with him to, to try to you know access whatever improvements he can, he can still make to his swing or to his approach and all of that. But he's an interesting guy. And very I think Sternsy, that as Paul would say, yeah, yeah. it is very strange. Um, <laughs> plus he had a 286 WRC plus last season. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> so he, he uh, and he, he also bad. had three yeah. plate appearances. <laughs> yep. Well. But he put up a point one war, which is better than a majority of the it's better than Ben Gamble. <laughs> yeah, it is I, better I, than I Ben Gamble. Better than Ben. Uh, the big, 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 big knock against McKinney. No minor league options. Mm-hmm. They aren't there. Okay. That's that's uh, that's not a Stearns guy. No options. So, uh, yeah, I I think he's probably the most likely internal replacement for Ben Gamble, and I think Ben Gamble's a non-roster or a non-tender because they're not going to get Ben Gamble down to six hundred thousand. Yeah, no, I think nine is probably like as low as they could maybe pitch him, but it, yeah, I don't think so. I think he's very likely a non-tender too. All right, uh, next question from Jason Donlinger. Is there any one free agent out there you think the Brewers will make a run at that could actually improve the club? So I'm going to assume this means, like, forget your Justin Smokes of the world. Is there a good player the Brewers could sign this offseason that would actually improve the team, Ryan? Well, this all comes back to what Brad was talking about, and we've talked about this in past weeks, too. The idea that if somebody falls into their lap on a good contract, that hopefully they will have resources available to really take advantage of that at least. If if the market does shape up that way and you're able to add a JT Real Mudo for very, very cheap, that they could do something like that. But I mean, I I think the question is more when you talk about could actually improve the club, well, anybody can improve the club. Like any player, even Justin Smoke. <laughs> it wouldn't be hard. Like can you improve know? the club because you, well, that's the whole point, is that in a in a given role, a player can be useful and can have a a spike in performance. And so, yeah, there's, I don't think it's very likely we're going to see them go out and have this big winter where you go, okay, yeah, they, they really seem to have, have done a lot here the way that they did in 2018 with Kane and Yelich or the next year with Grandal and Moustakis. I don't think we're likely to see that. I, I think that's pretty unlikely, but I think that we could see them add kind of around the fringes again. It's probably going to look somewhat similar to this year. And that then comes back to 
how much of this year's thing was a failure and how much of it was just this particular thing didn't work out as well as they had hoped, but they've, they've generally been successful with these strategies. So go to the well again and try to, to do something similar. I think that there's a lot to be said for the way that they, they go about building teams through depth and that that has been really the, the key hallmark of the David Stern's era. So I, I wouldn't get down on them for taking an approach that looks more like that. But I will be upset if they if there's opportunities obviously out there to get good players on good contracts and the Brewers completely, you know, stay out of those those markets. That would be that would be sad. Goodbye, Ryan Braun. Hello, Yoenna Cespedes. There's <laughs> <laughs> a take. Good lord. Uh no, I've I'm gonna stick to my guns and that Robbie Ray is destined to be a brewer. <laughs> and he after awful play for two consecutive seasons, he is going to be dirt cheap. They'll fix him in the pitching lab, sign him to a, a one year deal with an option, bada bing, bada boom, they get their dream and they make Robbie Ray a success. I know he's probably not the guy, type of guy that Jason's referring to, but Robbie Ray has a history of some incredibly impressive seasons that I think the Brewers can take advantage of. They've shown the ability to fix pitchers who maybe just have a singular issue. And I think Robbie Ray fits into the multi-issue bubble. But if you fix one of those issues, I think you start to see a pretty significant return in who he is as a player and the production he can have on the field versus looking at like a Brett Anderson again. There, there's a higher out, uh, chance of positive output from a Robbie Ray than there is another Brett Anderson. But I don't really think that they're going to be in play for any of those guys who you bring in and you're like, oh, this is 100% a non-risk positive to the team. I don't really think that those guys are in play for the yeah. Brewers this year unless we get one of the obscurities that we've mentioned a lot in the last few weeks, months. You know who also has a lot of problems that has a history of success that is available right now? Yeah, I was also thinking about bringing the guy up you're about to bring up, I think. Uh, so, yeah, the Pirates uh, declined the option on Chris Archer, who was dreadful and probably ruined the f- future of that franchise. <laughs> Based on what we now. saw from the Rays? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, David Stearns has been trying to get that guy for like three years. So there's another pitching lab case for you. Yeah, and I think you're going to see a lot of these reclamation projects. Archer is a great shout, so is is Ray. And I think that it's just going to come down to what guys are willing to settle for and where they want to go, where they think they're going to have opportunities. And the Brewers can offer that. That is one thing they can offer is opportunities. And they have a, a track record that they can go to guys and say, hey, yeah, maybe you're signing for less than you could get someplace else by a little bit by coming here. But Craig Council has a a reputation of using guys and shuffling through. And if you play well, you're going to get a chance to shine here and then potentially hit the free agent market for bigger money next year. So I think that will be attractive to players. And also just the idea that they can come to Milwaukee and be competitive because Milwaukee should still be a competitive team. So no DJ LeMayu, no Kike Hernandez. (laughs) No, uh, tr- oh, is this where we were supposed to say Trevor Bauer? Oh, God, is, is this where that was supposed to be slotted in? I don't no, think we have to worry I'm, about Bauer. I think he's gonna, <laughs> I'm, hoping, I'm hoping the Mets. Just well, so far, he hasn't court, him, but so far, he hasn't begged fans to court the Brewers, right? 
Yeah, it was just the the angels, I think, right? Well, and he's asking right now for what did what was he out there looking for? He wanted uh like two fifty over like eight years. Yeah, the Mets will give it. To Which him. that's know, a change in his strategy because he's yeah. always said in the past he wants to do one year contract to one year contract to one year contract. Mm-hmm. Which his uh, representation figured out that kind of tamped down his market more than he thought it would. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and especially, I think, in these economic times, I think even Trevor Bauer is smart enough to realize that just get the money while you can. Well, I do think Trevor Bauer is a smart guy. That's not to say yeah. the rest with everything else. <laughs> that's that's true. That's true. Uh, all right. Next question, kind of in the same vein, comes from Adam Post. What approximately will be the size of the largest contract the Brewers hand out this offseason? Ryan? Yeah, I've been thinking about this uh, while you guys were talking about that last subject. And trying to figure out exactly what I think my guess is I would be surprised to see them go more than two years unless it was like a Lindblom type situation where it's three years but the the average per year is so low that it's you know it it, it really is is very low so I think two years is kind of a maximum I could see and I would be surprised to see them go much more than 10 million a year for any one player but I, that seems like kind of a reasonable spot. So I guess like the very most I could see would be like two and 20, but that might be even overly optimistic. We'll see. Brad. I think the most they'll go in terms of cost for a single year is 8 million, possibly up to 10 million, depending on the opportunity that they have. But I, I think 8 million is a pretty comfortable number. And I don't think they'll be signing anyone to a multi-year deal unless it's someone who is highly affordable and the cumulative total of the deal is $15 million or less. So looking at three years, like a four, five, six type step up in terms of pay, like a Josh Lindblom. Yeah, very Lindblomy. Yeah, man. Yeah, I. it's just hard given the way that David Stearns and everyone has operated in the last couple of years to see a commitment longer than that. Cause I think after giving out the, the Kane contract and especially now, you know, locking in Christian Yelich, it seems like the strategy has kind of been like keep flexibility where you can. Cause especially, you know, for a team like the Brewers, even pre pandemic, I think it was probably wise to kind of keep those options open. You don't want to be weighed down by too many long-term contracts and then get stuck in the sunk uh, sunk cost fallacies and all of that stuff. So, yeah, I'm kind of with you guys. I think three years max. I mean, not being willing to go much more than that is kind of what cost them Grandal last year. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't see anything much more than like 330, three years, 30 million. I don't know. That's that's my best guess, but it also kind of depends on what's out there. So we'll see. Right. I think that if they go like three years, 30, it's going to be a guy who they believe has significant impact on the future of the organization. And they're like, ooh, he's willing to sign for multiple years to have financial stability, but we're actually screwing him over on this. Yes, let's play. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like 30 million, but we pay you like three this year. <laughs> well, not even that. Not even the backloaded, but like yeah. 30 million and your war dictates you should be worth like 80. And they're like, nah, I don't think anyone will sign for that far under their potential value, but an exaggerative version of that. No, but guys yeah. in that situation will go for one-year deals. They'll yes, say, okay, right. the market did not materialize for a big multi-year deal, so I'm going to 
go for a one-year deal and then re-hit the market. Like Marcus Stroman, who got an off- the qualifying offer, which is going to be like seventeen million or something along those lines, eighteen million. I think yeah. it was like eighteen six or something like that. Which he needs to take that like today. Yeah, I can't imagine there's any way he does not accept that deal. Yeah, I yeah, think he I, takes it because yeah, you're it, what best case scenario. He's getting fifteen million probably, and just based on what we've seen in the past in markets like this, where owners want to really screw players on money and play around with it, it's all speculative. But we're working off of the little knowledge we have in the past. I don't think he gets eighteen million again back on the market. So no, if and, JT Real Muto gets the qualifying offer, if DJ Lemayu gets the qualifying offer, I think the agents of those players are stupid for not saying yes. Yeah, and I think, you know, you got to remember, too, there's a new CBA up in a year or two here. So I think everybody's going to be kind of hesitant to lock themselves in too long here. You know, I think there's a lot of wait and see. And, you know, just like the owners want flexibility with their payroll, the players are going to want flexibility with their contracts, too, knowing that they're, you know, fully locked in. So, um, you know, short of a lot of weird free agent contracts this year having multiple option years attached or something like that, you know, something like the Nick Castellanos deal where he's got opt outs that he just, he, he opted in for this next year and he's got another opt out next year. I don't really foresee any huge contracts like that, but it'll be interesting to see how teams structure deals. Maybe we will see, maybe, and this is counterintuitive, we'll see more like player options after one year where players can opt out. So Mm -hmm. here's a, here's a deal where we're going to give you, it's maybe not necessarily a big long-term deal, but it it gives the player the uh, the ability to opt out so that they have the security of multiple years should the market just continue to be crap for their services, but allows them, if the market all of a sudden looks better, to go ahead and, and re-hit the market. I, we might see some of that, too. It, it's really going to be interesting to see how this all unfolds. It's going to suck for the players and for people that root for the players to do well in these things. But it's going to be interesting nonetheless to see how that all shakes out. What is the one dumb team who is like playing like, like the Cincinnati Reds for this year where they're signing everyone to multi-year free agent deals. Oh, we'll get to it, but <laughs> yeah, I, it's I, coming. Have a, I have an idea on who that's going to be this year. Oh, okay. That's called um, a teaser. <laughs> the tease in the biz. Uh, That'll be the, that'll be the question after this one. But uh, first up, another question from Jay: uh, How bad financially are the owners really in right now? Even though they didn't get their gate or ticket sales like we talked about, they still got a ton of playoff TV money. They're going to sign a new TBS deal, and they didn't have to pay as many drafted players, minor leaguers, most of the players' salaries in the ma- majors, so that kind of thing. So I guess uh, Ryan. You know, we, we already kind of talked around this topic a little bit. We don't really know a whole lot, but how bad off do you think the owners are actually right now? They're dealing with more uncertainty than they've they're used to having to deal with, right? That's the biggest thing right now is they there's a sure. wide range of potential outcomes in terms of if they're expected to pay full salaries next year. That's very different than what you know they did this year in a shortened season. If they're gonna try to have a full season. We don't know what any of that's going to look like. And if if does does the agreement that they came to last spring about paying full prorated salaries, does that apply to this year as well? Well, I, I actually don't know the answer to that. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty here and a lot of things that have to be worked out. And that's why teams are being particularly 
careful at the moment in terms of how much money they want to commit going forward. And depending on what happens with the virus and what happens politically and what happens just overall with the economy, we could see this go in different directions. But I think they're going to want to keep their options as open as long as possible, which we've already talked about. Basically, they want to they want to keep their options open and they want to be flexible. And it it does make sense. And yes, they have a lot of revenue, but they have a lot less revenue than they would have in normal situations. And there's a wide variance on what potential revenue they will have. So they kind of have to plan for all potential outcomes that way, which we already I talked think that, about. Yeah, I think that's what we're looking at here is much like businesses, businesses set an expectation for the profits that they're going to bring in. And even if that the what the end result is, is a record for them, if they are under what they projected, it is a panic mode for the business because they have set aside expectations to bring in so much money. So if a business expects to bring in five trillion and only brings in four and a half trillion, and that's a record and they have record profits, it's still a panic mode for this. So you're looking at a place where even though they're bringing in profit, almost definitely, they are still profiting on what is happening. They're bringing in substantially less than they had allocated to and expected regardless, even in best case scenario, almost certainly. So that's for anyone making that amount of money, that's a panic mode situation. I'm not saying whether it's justifiable, whether it's reasonable or anything. It's just a panic mode situation. That's the reality of how these things operate and what really happens with them. So I don't know if it's really about how bad they are or if they're not better off than they wanted to be. Well, right. And like you said, coming under projections is panic worthy and uncertainty is also very bad for businesses too. They like to know how things are going to go and you know that helps them project forward and we there's just no possible way to project anything more than a week or two out at this point so i think that'll factor in as well right right now i think like the logical thing you can expect just based on how every other sport is handling things for some reason is like 15 percent per capacity crowds for at least at half the season uh 15 yeah. to 30 percent capacity crowds depending on where you are yeah, but if you're in Texas or Florida, you're probably better shot of that than other teams, I would say. But yeah, yeah. But as we look and people kind of get kind of overexposed and sick of the virus, we've seen just more risque action. And I think after a winter being clogged up, regardless of the situation, people are going to ignore that even more so. So therefore, we're going to have more attendance there. Uh, but it all depends on what there's out there to help protect the public. What we've learned, this is still constantly a growing factor uh, where we're learning something new every day about what is happening and whether uh, it, it's something that we can truly have immunity over. And the potential of a vaccine also is going to be huge in all of this. Right. That, well, I know part of the vaccine that. issue is whether we can truly have immunity. Yeah. Right. Cause it might be like the flu where I, I hate to go back to those comparisons. Maybe I've tried it in waters that are too dangerous, but the flu evolves all is a virus that is evolving all the time. Th that is purely speculative, but it's not anything real scientific or anything. I'm just saying like there, there is the off chance. That this could be something that is just like the new reality, yeah. um, which so is terrifying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's, 
it it I think illustrates the uncertainty that the owners are facing. Well, all of that is hypothetical. All of that is speculative, based on not having full knowledge of the situation because it's dem demonstrative of how no one really has as much knowledge as we want to have about the challenges we're facing. And that's the issue the owners are dealing with and why it's scary. Yep. Uh, one more, I guess, uh, revenue ownership question comes from our friend Aslatam. Uh, says kind of along the same vein, no gate revenue or revenue sharing in 2020, potentially no revenue sharing in 2021. Is this the offseason where the big market teams with huge local TV deals or the Mets with their new owner, Steve Cohen, throwing money around for now, take advantage of the depressed free agent market and build super teams? So we kind of hinted at this. And I I would say if my if I had to make one bet on a team that does try to jump the market and spend sort of like the Reds did last year, it'd be the Mets. But I don't know. Ryan, what's your take? I don't think they'll have to spend like the Reds to get the players that the Reds got. I think they will be able to go after guys for shorter, smaller deals and be able to get that. And I do think they're a very good shout in this case to potentially get this. It'll be interesting to see who, which teams decide to do this. I wouldn't be surprised to see the Red Sox do it either because yeah, they after had a really bad year. Yeah. Yeah. After a really bad year. And they've done this in the past where after the 2000 and remember the 2013 team after their collapse with Bobby Valentine in 2012 after you know a couple down years there they bounced right back and spent a bunch of money on sort of a variety of guys and were able to win a World Series doing it and the Red Sox are always willing to sort of go against the flow of what's happening in the game and take advantage of situations like that so I could see some teams like that and the Yankees always because the Yankees are just, you know, printing money over there and the Dodgers because they, I'm sure, are going to see a huge windfall from having just won the World Series and all of that. So not the same sort of windfall you normally get, but still a, a pretty remarkable, I would imagine, windfall from that. I think that there are some teams that will do that and maybe there will be some rando team that decides to, to go and spend money and that we're not thinking of right now that decides, yeah, this is the, the proper moment in the market for us to go and, and throw around some money because we can get better bang for our buck than we normally yeah. would be able to. It's just hard to know exactly who that would be. Well, and it's hedging a bet, right? Mm -hmm. You're hedging that if you invest a bunch in players that maybe things will return by normal to normal by the second half of the season. If they do having a more competitive team is going to be immediately financially more rewarding than having a less competitive team. So, and if you end up winning the world series because of those investments and things, and we have attendance rates back at a more normal spot, you are going to see the normal windfall you get from winning the playoffs. So by having something competitive, I could see something like San Diego. They always seem to have more money for some reason, which is weird. But I don't really see like the Dodgers or Yankees doing it because they've shown in the past that they don't really want to play in those market spaces. They are like, we got it. We have what we need. Thank you. Go away. That's kind of what they seem to do for the most part when it comes to that situation. But then there's the Mets who always seem to be willing to spend. And they seemingly have lost half their roster based on the MLBPA free agent list. <laughs> <laughs> they are the only one at three lines and they have the most names by a long shot, but so they have a lot of players to just replace anyway. So they need to go out there and be kind of more active than normal on the market because of that. 
which then leads to them having to make decisions that maybe even if the Mets were operating intelligently, they wouldn't want to. But it's also the Mets, so. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be really fascinating to see what Cohen decides to do with this team, assuming he gets approved, because I know de Blasio was doing like. He did. They, they, they approved it. Oh, did it actually get through? Yeah, so he's, he's through. It's official. Okay. Yeah, we'll see what that actually looks like. But yeah, Cohen could definitely shake up and do something different. I know Mets fans are over the moon excited for somebody who has actual money to spend <laughs> as opposed to the the Wilpons who got taken in the Bertie Madoff thing and, you know, therefore were basically using the Mets as like a piggy bank. So Yeah. They've at least got a white collar criminal that's willing to spend. Right now, so <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's good. Uh, I think a team that's kind of under the radar that I think would actually, I think, irritate Brewers fans a little bit is the Twins. I know, like, Carl Polad said in the last couple of days that, like, the COVID situation is not necessarily guaranteeing that they'll spend less next year. I think he was kind of hedging, too, saying, like, there's going to be some sort of, you know, uncertainty discount or whatever he called it. But I think it wouldn't be surprising. You know, we've seen the Twins kind of step out in free agency a little bit more the past couple of years. It wouldn't surprise me to see them kind of jump in, especially because they can't get past the damn first round of the playoffs. Well, ever since the old man died in Minnesota, the the kids have been spending a lot more. And this is usually the opposite of what happens. You usually have the father like Angelos or uh, Illich or Illich. Yeah. yeah, who was spending just before they died to try to win a World Series. And then the kids come in and are like, oh, no, we're going to pull the purse strings tighter. The Stack opposite has happened too, yeah. in. Yeah, well, the, the opposite has happened with the Twins. And people have to remember, Carl Polad, the, so is, is Junior the one running the team now? Because Carl Polad was the original owner, right? I'm not sure. Yeah, it, whatever. The, the kids are now running the business. But the old man was one of the wealthiest people in the country at one point. He was the wealthiest baseball owner for a long time. Which Could people for his own stadium, but that's yes. sidetracking. Yeah, yeah. well, people people <laughs> pointed that out and pointed out that, like, Carl Polat is running the Twins like a tiny, small market when he is individually one of the most wealthy people. I think he's since been eclipsed by, like, the learners in Washington, D.C. and, what is it, the Guggenheims who own the Dodgers? Like, he's been eclipsed since then, and they're not as wealthy as them. But he's still personally one of the more wealthy individuals to own a baseball team. Mm-hmm. and could afford to spend a lot more than he has uh or than they have to this point and so yes that would be that would be the kind of situation where if somebody just decides screw it we're going to we're going to go for it and take advantage of the situation yeah i could see the twins making a lot of sense there because they certainly yeah. have the money to do it yeah uh yeah so we'll see and sorry everybody for the last 25 minutes of Again, labor and, uh, you know, money talk. But we do have a Brewers question. So if you've made it this far, thank you for sticking around. And we do have a Brewers question from Darren Jones, who's asking, who is standing at shortstop for the Brewers on opening day in 2021? I think this is a question that, you know, the answer may have changed in the last year or so. So I guess, Brad, is it Arcia? Is it Urias or somebody else? I'm kind of getting curious whether or not based on the what they're doing with everyone else and Arcia being a top producer for the team, but only marginally really improving from a historic bad. If they actually non-tender him. Ooh, that's a spicy take. And if Luis Urias isn't the standing shortstop on 
the opening day roster for 2021. I think there's I, an excellent chance that happens. Yeah, I. It's been something I've been. It wasn't something I was considering at all until you non until you declined the option on Jerko. Jerko, and then you're looking at a situation where RC is really not going to be much that much cheaper. I mean, what he was like two point two million dollars or something like this. Yeah, the Brewers like three next year, but yeah, right. So I mean, we can pull up the arbitration projections, and I'm guessing it's a number that that'll be close to the limitations for the brewers and what they want to pay. So yeah, I'm wondering if I'm going to take a wild card bet and do Urias here just because they non-tender Arcia. Yeah. I mean, they're not thrilled with Arcia's defense. And like you said, he, he improved, but he's not great. I guess, Ryan, what's your thoughts? Urias. Yeah. I think that that's probably the, the odds on bet at this point. Are we all on the non-tender Arcia train here? I think it's a distinct possibility. Yeah, it's I, interesting. I, yeah, I I would put it at fifty-fifty right now in my uh, personal odd system that he is non-tendered. I think there is value Arcia provides to the team in terms of morale and stuff like that. The, the sort of things that we wonder if actually have value that I think do have value, but. With yeah, Jerko I, I, gone, though, do you do you go ahead with Arcia at short and then maybe slot Urias at third at least to start the year? I think those are questions they don't really end up caring about, which is kind of what's been terrifying. <laughs> They're always like, ah, the world will figure itself out. And it's funny, they got both of they got rid of all three of their corner guys except for Vogelbach. Well, yeah, because Big Dan's great. Yeah. And then there's not going to be a DH, and they have to DFA him in spring, but whatever. <laughs> I think we'll just suffer through his first base defense if Ryan Braun's not back. They'll be like, eh, whatever. <laughs> they don't care. Teach him the G-man splits. He'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think it is dependent on what they can do with the what they believe is possible for the infield market. But as the infield becomes more saturated, as more guys are non-tendered, more guys' options are declined, more guys are put out. Yeah, I think RC is getting uh, non-tendered this year. Hmm. Well, we'll probably talk about that a lot more in the coming weeks. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, kind of shifting back to other teams around the league, <laughs> the White Sox uh, caused quite a tizzy when they you know, took their young, exciting, outspoken team and decided that Tony LaRusso would be the perfect person to manage that group of personalities. Uh, so we've got a question from Stephen Kurtz here on Patreon. says, with the White Sox bringing back Tony LaRusso, will they also bring back the short pants on their uniforms? <laughs> Wasn't that a Bill Vec thing? I don't know, maybe. But were they wearing the short shorts the last time they hired him 40 years ago? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he was hired in 1979, which, incidentally, <laughs> is the year I was born. So, yeah. Happy birthday. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he was managing a major league that? baseball team, and I'm I'm 40. <laughs> yeah. Did you see, like, some of the spec that this is all just Reinsdorf kind of making good for making a mistake back in 1979 or whatever it was? I like, brought that up in the chat. I think, oh yeah, I'm the one that brought that up because it was... It was something Reinsdorf said he has always regretted was letting Hawk Harrelson, who he hired to be the GM, <laughs> he let Hawk Harrelson fire Tony Larusa 
and he never should have done that and he regretted it and like yeah this is him trying to make good on that decision which is always how you should make decisions is trying well, yeah. to yeah. correct 30 year old mistakes that you think you made well and we've seen how well clinging to old managers who used to be very successful has gone in the league recently yeah so we already know how this is going to go right like well, it's gonna be like a year and a half i know tony la Russa does a little bit better job when it comes to uh what he manages and the baseball environment around him he's still a tedious asshole they're gonna yes. win 90 games next year and he's gonna be manager of the year and then oh, he's gonna God. be fired a year and a half after that for okay. getting drunk and falling asleep at a stoplight yeah do you want the spicy take there is a chance that this is not a total disaster. It's yeah. probably small, but Tony La Russa, people forget. And I, it was it was mentioned this week that, you know, Tony La Russa was for a long time considered like a cutting edge innovator of a manager and was considered to be that and always did for the most part, have good relationships with players. People will point to like the Colby Rasmus situation and go, yeah, there was that, but that was complicated. And it was like the dad was like way, he was like a helicopter parent for like an adult. And that was weird and not great. And like, so you could almost cut Larusa a little bit of slack there, but he's generally had good relationships with players. Yes. He has tended to be a little too veteran heavy, but we've seen guys, we've seen Dusty Baker change his stripes over the years. You know, Dusty Baker is, is, was not ever considered as cutting edge as Larusa was in his younger days. And he has modified and changed as things go. Mm -hmm. But the, if you want to take the, the other side of this, so there, there is this chance that it could be not a disaster, but did you see that uh, they had when the white Sox released their, uh, like the the picture of it, they had a signature on it, and it was supposed to be Tony LaRusso's, and it was actually AJ Hinch's. Yes, and then they deleted Jeez. it, and it's like, yeah, this is you... why it's dangerous to work ahead in certain industries. <laughs> well, but also like Rick Hahn, he basically, without like saying it, said, "Yeah, this is all Jerry. This has nothing to do with me." Mm -hmm. He's making it known that this was not He's washing his hands of this right away. Right? Yeah, that this this time. isn't me. The, this is not me. This is this is the boss doing this. And like he wants no part of it. So that could really I mean, you could see a world where that becomes a real problem because Tony LaRusso does have certain ways he wants to do things. And him and Jockety had a falling out. Mm -hmm. And then him and uh, Mozilliak never really saw eye to eye either. And when LaRusso exited, it was, you know, widely viewed that they were happy to be rid of him. Even though the last we saw of Tony LaRusa, remember, was him managing in a very, very progressive, forward thinking way. He was the first guy to go through the postseason uh, and bullpen the way that would become standard, you know, five, six years later. He did that in 2011 and the Brewers got run from the playoffs because of it by a team that wasn't as good as them. And then he helped destroy the Diamondbacks. Yes. Yes. And then he did that. So there's there's a mixed level of uh, of uh, history with Larusa. all kinds so, of good and bad stuff. I don't who's think the, who's oh, the ahead. most important player on the White Sox, though, in terms of like who the team buys into the most, who the team rallies around the most. 
Tim Anderson? That's what I think. Mm-hmm. Who is going to have the hardest time with Tony La Russa based on the comments that Tony La Russa has already made publicly on multiple facets about I think Fernando this, Tatis? Okay, I think this gets overblown because La Russa is going to back down on this. He's already backing down on it. He's already talking about how he's he's changed his mind. He's going to do things differently. I, I think this part of I it... Don't- I think this part of it gets overblown because I don't think he's going to he's not going to be a, a tyrant and go after his own players. For this I don't know if that's I'll true. I'll be shocked. I'll be shocked. Uh, if it is. He's I always done it. Way. He's always done it. And he was just a month ago. He was trashing Fernando Tatis for doing this. Yeah, but th- that was when he didn't have a stake when he didn't have to. He could just have an opinion and it didn't like he didn't have to actually get along with a player and get the best performance possible out of them. Now he does. That's going to change. I'm all in the middle on this. I think, you know, like Brad says, the comments are very recent. So it's it's easy to think, like, these are true current beliefs. But at the same time, you know, you go to his introductory comments. I think he recognizes how unique an opportunity this is. And it may be his last best chance, and he's not willing to screw it up. But it's really hard to change old stripes, right, Brad? Yeah, at the same time, Yadi Molina still behaved like a belligerent toddler under Tony Larusa. So I guess maybe if we look at historically, yeah, he cares about pimping home runs to an extent, but he doesn't care if his players are outspoken a holes. No, he doesn't. He, he this is not going to be the issue. I'm just when. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be about winning back to his days in the A's with McGuire and Ken Seiko. He'll look right. the other way on a lot of things. We're also talking about a guy who, for the first two thirds of his career, benefited potentially the most as any manager from the steroid era. Sure. So, yeah, it it's still I can't believe it's real, but we'll, I guess we'll see what happens, especially in weeks. it's yeah. so far. The like, OK, I when the Astros hired Dusty. You get it, right? You're you're in an emergency situation where you lost your your manager at an odd point in the season or they odd point in the offseason. win, so they needed like a nice, highly respected like baseball man kind to the media, baseball man. Yeah, so and, and a guy who's had relative success in recent years, right? Like yeah. Dusty did all right with Washington. Yeah. Now you're you have an offseason. You have an opportunity to go in the way that's helped other teams be so successful. And we've seen this pattern of success. And instead you go back to a norm that's outdated by five to six seasons. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, my hot take is I don't know if AJ Hinch is any good either. So we'll see. But (laughs) (laughs) Hey, he'll figure out another way to cheat. He's going to need to in Detroit. (laughs) <laughs> I I can't imagine anyone having expect. I think they would have let Ron Gardenhire exist in Detroit until he just oh, yeah. uh, faded no, into if, dust. If he didn't retire, he'd still be the manager. Yeah, just because I don't think anyone has any expectations for that team right now. No, but yeah. they're they're pretty quickly putting together some stuff. Like they're going to be, I think they're going to be a respectable team within a year. Or two. I mean, we saw this year like they can be potentially momentarily scary for a team you know like they've they've got some something cooking but yeah they're they have three really good young starting pitchers so yeah that's the hard part right yeah all right what sorry uh yeah one last patreon question uh because we're running a little long today 
Uh, Steve DeRozier is asking, uh, I guess, a fantasy baseball question. So I will ask this to Ryan and then duck out because I'm terrible at this. He says, in a historical winter fantasy baseball league, like score sheet, what metrics would you use to select players? If war, whose version of war do you trust or use most? I'm seeing some significant differences in player rankings depending on the version he looks at. I guess, yeah. Ryan? Yeah, big differences this year. I listen to a lot of fantasy podcasts, and that is kind of becoming a, an early hallmark is that there's wide variance of opinions on players, especially guys who had particularly good or particularly bad seasons this year. How much do you want to weight that sample from this year where a player drastically changed? How much do you want to assume that a player went up or down? I'm not familiar with score sheets, so I don't know exactly what you're looking for. I would say that what you want to do is look at more of the granular stuff so if it's if you're talking offense only, WRC plus and DRA are where you want to go. So look at those and and look at those those are both good and you can get a lot of a lot from that. Particularly if you're I don't know exactly what score sheet does and how it works, but DRA is going to give you an idea of you know sort of a, an expectation of what's coming uh even more so than WRC plus. If it includes defense, if you're if you're trying to add defense here, because you said it's a fantasy baseball winter league. If defense is included, then I would try to look at the the defensive metrics kind of around baseball. And you're going to have to look at a bunch of different things because I don't trust anyone in particular. I I have I have skepticism about the the fan graphs one to a point, but I think that the baseball, the baseball prospectus defensive metrics are pretty good. So I would start there where I go with this. And I do a lot of winter baseball analyzing for preparing for my very competitive fantasy league, which I completely blew this year. I always go granular with baseball savant. I look for red ink on a lot of the like high statistic points because that is evaluating the actual talent versus the outcomes so when you're looking at hard hit you're looking at uh, expected batting average expected ops things like that Uh, measurements that are based on how the actual contact went in plate i think are a way to actually predict future success for the player versus looking at other outcomes i think like the three most valuable that I look at is whiff rate and see if the whiff rate was uh, high for the league. Fangraphs has great charts where if you Google the actual name of the statistic, they'll give you like, okay, this is what an average player should be at for this statistic. This is what an above average player will be at for this statistic. This is what a below average player will be at for the statistic. So I look at the three I combine the most are whiff rate, which you can also find on baseball savant hard hit rate, in BABIP, a low BABIP and a high hard hit rate and a low whiff rate tell me that that player highly underperformed based on bad luck. And then when we're looking at pitching performance, you can use baseball savant to an extent that just tells you the talent behind the ball, but it doesn't necessarily tell you the success behind hand. I really rely heavily on baseball prospectus information for this, especially DRA, I think is the best predictive talent ERA measurement in analytics, FIP is better at telling you how a performance should have gone. 
ERA tells you how a performance went. DRA tells you what the talent could achieve. So that's where I really rely on for my measurements of baseball players. The hardest part is going to be, I think you basically have to recycle your thoughts on relievers this year from last year because the sample size is just too small. We're looking at like 25 innings max for most relievers. And that's going to be incredibly hard to validate based on just what they performed. So maybe look at anyone who saw a velocity uptick, anyone who has high pitch rotation, all things you can get from baseball savant and also baseball savant has a great uh, kind of measurement for defense, just in terms of raw talent when you're looking at sprint speeds and things like that. So you can also use that. I think it's turning out baseball actually has somehow put together a very good tool on that back end in terms of measuring things that end up being very important for fantasy baseball and predicting who's going to have future success. All right. That's a lot more insightful than I could possibly provide <laughs> anything well, related. To this is why baseball. until my entire team got injured, I was top two or three in our fantasy baseball league all season. But then because it's 16 teams and there's no one out there, once all my players got injured, I was like, I'm boned. <laughs> this is over. <laughs> you know, I got, I got screwed over with the, low offensive environment i did really well in the pitching statistics and horribly in the offensive numbers so uh there you go a uh, reminder that when you do sign up to become a patron a five dollar patron on our patreon site patreon.com slash mke tailgate you get question priority and you also get a shout out when you sign up and we've actually got a couple of people to shout out this week ryan yeah so welcome back uh matthew van claven i think <laughs> Yeah, pretty Again, sure. No guarantees we get your name right, but we do say your name on the podcast. Yeah, Matthew uh, was a, a sponsor for a while and uh, left and then rejoined us. So thank you for, for coming back. And this next one, we're not quite sure who this guy is. There's a couple possibilities here. Uh, Danny Noonan. So either it's the guy from Caddyshack or it's Paul's brother. So I mean, it, either way. Yeah, it could be good either, either direction. Yeah. It, he's probably a good egg no matter what so yeah we'll figure out how he feels about gophers or something and uh yeah go from there all right so thank you matthew and danny for signing up uh a reminder we do send out those call for questions every single week both on patreon and on our twitter account that's at mke tailgate on twitter if you have a question for us you want us to talk about especially now that we're in the off season and kind of looking for things to talk about from week to week kind of anticipating it being a slow transaction off season. Uh, just reply to our tweets every week with your question, or you can follow all of us individually. Ryan is at RD top. Brad is at brew crew blue. Paul is at Badger Noonan and I'm at James L that's James with a Y. And while you're at it, if you haven't already, please do subscribe to our podcast. You can do that on Apple podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, overcast, pocket Casts, pretty much anywhere else you listen to po uh, podcasts. You can subscribe. And while you're there, please do leave us a nice review. Uh, let us know what we can do better or what you enjoy about the show. In the meantime, thank you all for listening this week. Stay well, and we will see you next week on the Walking